Hello, I'm Rich Nardo, and thanks for tuning in to the State of Flux podcast. If you are a musician or a music business professional, this episode is pure gold. We were lucky enough to get two of the smartest, most forward-thinking people in the industry, Rob Abelow and Randy Nichols, to sum up where the music biz went this year and where it could be going in 2024. If you're unfamiliar with Rob, he's the founder of Roll Call Records, where he's worked with some of my favorite artists of the past 15 years, including Rubble Bucket, Typhoon, On and On, L1011, and the Almighty Sago. He's been pivotal in startups centered around music adaptation of the blockchain and AI, and he's currently running Where Music's Going, where he provides phenomenal insight for artists on the latest tech and how to build a sustainable audience. Randy is, you know, my neighbor, but he also happens to be one of the most respected managers in rock. In addition to managing artists like Under Oath and The Starting Line, he's been a pivotal strategic consultant for some of the biggest companies in music tech, including Bands in Town, Moment House, and At Venue. He's also on the board of the National Independent Talent Organization and a member of the 1175 Collective. We cover AI, blockchain, ticketing, live streaming, social media, and streaming. Even the outro where I asked where people could find them online ended up being educational. Needless to say, this is a special one. So, without further ado, let's jump in. Are you ready? And also, Randy, I just have to thank you especially for agreeing to do the podcast, even though I sent you exploding hot sauce. Thank that was amazing. <laughs> Does that not fit the podcast? Oh, actually, you're recording anyway. So, Rob, he told me he makes hot sauce. I was like, oh, I love hot sauce. I'm like, I want to try some. So he bottled some up. I texted him something about it. He's like, oh, I'm actually coming by your house now to drop it off. I have company. We're like eating something where hot sauce is perfect. So I'm like, let's open it up right now. We're in my kitchen. I open it up. It exploded all over me, like all on the walls, on <laughs> everything. And Rich was so embarrassed. I'm like, dude, it was good. I'm like licking it off my fingers. It's like, <laughs> I don't care. Was any hot sauce salvaged for the meal? Yes, there was some hot sauce salvaged, right. although I chose to not eat it past that day because I was assuming it was starting to ferment and change, which is what caused the bottle to explode. So it's like, who knows when that bad point was. That day, it was still good, though. I'm still eating it now, so it's still good. The funny yeah. thing is, though, Jesse Corman was his yeah. 40th birthday, and he had said I uh, wanted to try it. So I sent him a package of the hot sauce with like a card and everything. And in the card, I had wrote, text me before you open it. The bottle might pop like champagne. Want to make sure I tell you that in advance, <laughs> but I didn't want to ruin the surprise of the hot sauce being part of your gift. And he texts me the day before his birthday. He's like, oh, I just got the package. Ava and I are about to like put the hot sauce on everything. And I was like, oh, great. I was like, did you read the note? He was like, oh, no, I'm going to read the card on my actual birthday. <laughs> so I text him back. I'm like, wait, wait. And then he just he texts me back a picture of him and Ava. And they did the exact same thing that they opened it up and it exploded on them. <laughs> Uh, hey, you try, you know, what can you do? I, yeah. I like the, like the hot sauce as like champagne thing. I feel like you could launch this and get like a viral TikTok trend going of people of opening people their hot, of exploding. Hot and I, you could sell like, you know, a hundred thousand of these and then just be done. Yeah. Now, I know you wanted to talk about what's going to be big in 2024. And I think <laughs> it's going to be Rich Nardo's exploding hot sauce. Yeah. Poppin' Hot Sauce, it's the next viral song. Yeah, well, again, thank you guys for being here. I have like six or seven different things I wanted to talk to you about, which is a lot considering we're probably gonna try to keep this to about an hour, so we can just jump in. First on the agenda, was talking a little bit about AI. Randy, I know you and I have talked about it a bunch, but it's very catalytic and 
just to start, I wanted to get your guys' opinion. How do you feel it affects artists? Do you think it's something that people should be integrating into their process or is it something that should be left alone? Oh, man, it's a big topic because AI can mean so many things. I mean, we've used AI in a lot of different ways. We just didn't really think of it that way, you know, from things like auto-tune into like lander audio mastering and everything over the last few years. And it, it's just now I think more that it's like generative AI that is so scary and dawning on us what can happen. I think there's like a couple ways to look at it for artists. I mean, there's AI that touches directly like core creative of you as an artist, which is like your music creation. And there's a lot we could talk about there, but then there's also how AI touches all of like the ancillary things you do from music videos to writing, to marketing, to even just the mastering of your music. So I think like for each artist, it's really about do I care about like the productive elements of AI and how that can improve things and I think for most it makes sense and almost undoubtedly you'll be using it in many ways on the more creative side I think it's about like who you are as an artist and if you feel like this can help elevate what you're doing or like unlock new things I feel like the majority of like the generative AI is really going to be about this creator consumer class that's almost like beyond aspiring musicians and helping them jump into music and I got a lot more to say there, but I've, I've probably gone beyond. No, totally. I'll, I'll, I'll jump. Yeah, I'll jump out a bit there too. And Rob, I love talking to you because like we see things so similar. Literally, when someone talks about AI, I go to auto tune. We've been doing this in varying ways. And, you know, I view for the musician side of it, I view AI as another tool in the toolbox. And it's how you use that tool. There's people who use auto tune horribly, and there's people who've done amazing things with it. And it's just, it's another tool. It's how you use it. And like I've had an artist where I, I ran through chat GPT, a bunch of their lyrics and just like to see like what commonalities were in their lyrics. And I pointed it out to them when you tell a write a song by your band, it always puts these certain words in. So maybe you're not realizing you're doing that and you could use AI to remove something rather than to add something. So there's just so many different ways to view what you're using it for. But the other side of AI, like I feel like there's two things. It's a creative tool in your toolbox, but then there's the broad side of things. Like I just read an article this morning how Russian hackers were using Cameo videos to make anti-Ukraine videos from American celebrities, which is crazy. Somebody bought a Cameo from varying celebrities and had them wish Vladimir like a happy birthday or whatever. And then they use that to make them talk about Vladimir Putin. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in the Times about it today. That type of use of AI or just musically putting out fake versions you know, pretending to be someone else and uploading it to services. That fraud has to be worked out. But then there's other things that could be tremendous. Like today's my birthday, by the way. And a bunch of people sent me like birthday videos and all these different things. And I was thinking, how cool would it be for someone to license their voice or their sound? Like, you know, sing happy birthday to people. That could be a product that the artist offers that the fan loves. I love it. So to me, it's like, if I think about generative AI or how much this is going to change the industry, it's like a new form of derivatives that gives mostly the biggest IP, but every artist, the unlimited scale for interactivity, personalization, collaboration. There is a company who's working on that idea is part of their package. They're already a pretty sizable company and it makes sense for them. I'll, we could talk about it after because it's not public. And I think it's such a genius idea. And so much of it is, we were even seeing 
seeing like the very beginnings of things like that with this YouTube partnership that just launched where they, God, is it, I think it's Warner. So they have five artists or, or so that are partnering with them and they've licensed their voice and uh, creators on YouTube shorts, like a, a select few of them in the US right now for the beta can use those artists and generate new music from those artists with like certain props. So like they're singing about XYZ, you know, that's relevant. And then they can use that as background music in their shorts. And you just think about this, there is potential to grow baseline revenue of the music industry in really large ways, because I think people are willing to pay for things that are personal and interactive, like a happy birthday, right? Almost more so than they are more for, for mass consumption. We're so tied and anchored to essentially mass consumption is free. It's this like monthly subscription. It'll, it'll go up incrementally, but that's all I'm paying. But if people can be interactive or personalized, they may be willing to spend a lot more money piece by piece. And I think that's where like generative AI, when done right, when licensed, can have a lot of potential. Yeah, and we're gonna have content ID for these things in time, just like you had content ID eventually for YouTube to claim these things. And you know, like there's one thing that I've said like 10 years ago, I wish someone would create, which is a Shazam for voice. So like if I'm listening to like the radio, which is less relevant today, and I'm like, who's that voice? But that's going to be created when you're looking at generative AI, when it's going into a commerce fashion. That's how we're going to create these tools to find these things. But where it's going to get interesting is things like the Marvin Gaye lawsuit with Robin Thicke, where something's inspired by. And, you know, like generative AI is almost doing the same thing as what Robin Thicke and I think it was Pharrell did consciously. So that's where the fine line gets really, really interesting because these are problems that existed pre-AI and aren't easily fixable within AI. Yeah. I think every time you have a disruptive technology like AI, you're going to run into a lot of resistance at, at first because of these issues that, that nobody knows how to regulate yet because they've not been in that situation. And I think a lot of what you guys are talking about with content ID is going to solve a lot of these issues. And I also like the way, Rob, that you're phrasing this as it's actually a potential monetization opportunity for artists as well, if you're looking at it correctly. I think everybody immediately is like, well, this is how we do things. So if you stop me from doing that, you're going to stop me from earning a living. But if you look at it from the opposite point of view, then you could actually look at it as an opportunity for almost passive income for an artist while you're working on your other stuff, because this is something you set up and you collect on while you're working on your album or whatever. And I actually want to talk a little bit more about what Randy was saying about the artist he was working with, where he used AI to find lyric redundancy, because that's something I've not thought about in the past is using AI as almost an audit of your work. I wonder if you guys know of anything where you could actually do that, not just for lyrics, but for for composition. Well, I spent two years trying to build that startup. Uh, <laughs> as you know, that was like essentially yeah. like the core vibe of it was that actually what, the way we fall in love with music is when we people are optimally surprised by what's delivered and you know you need you don't want to be too surprising because it's overwhelming for people, but if you're too boring and repetitive then people drift away. So you have to like build this anticipation, deliver on it, and they want to go back to it. And I think finding a way to deliver that to people, I, I thought what Randy said was so interesting too, because a big fear for people with AI, right, is saying, oh, everything's going to be even more of like the same. It all kind of ends up like coalescing towards the same sounds and vibes. And that's, that's kind of been an issue even pre-AI in the last bunch of years, just because of algorithms. 
So you're almost kind of using that like you know, reverse engineering it. Why don't you create something that understands that reverse engineering and just the output is saying all those redundancies and here's maybe some suggested changes or you just figure it out yourself. I think is, I don't know of any tools that are doing that today. I think it's a great use case. That actually brings me to another thing that I wanted to talk about today, which was blockchain. Because what you guys are talking about with content ID, I know NFT is kind of a dirty word. All of us have worked pretty extensively with NFTs over the past couple of years. But even if the market is down, you can't deny that blockchain is- NFT really sales useful. are up significantly over the last three months, by the way. NFTs are, I know that the crypto yeah. market has gone up. Has, have N NFT sales been up as well? Yeah, I think it's like 250% I just read this morning. That's crazy. I didn't even know this. Time to jump back in the water. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and music and, and if music NFTs, although such a small fraction, was more resilient anyway, you know, less affected by by the, the wider market. Well, that was another thing that I wanted to get into with the blockchain. And but before we get into that component of it, tying back to the AI stuff and content ID, I think blockchain. And I actually was listening to John Favreau uh, do an interview, and he talked about this: when you're using AI in something, using blockchain for authenticity proof when you're in that world, is that something you guys? have worked with or heard anything about? I'm a huge believer in that. I've said like it, it may end up happening that AI gives like Web3 its first big usable like use case and value prop for a lot of people and in doing just that. There's a platform called Pixelinks and they launched something called Chorus AI, which is merging these two things in a really interesting way. So like the initial betas of this are using Dead Mouse as a, as a co-founder of the platform and him and a few other DJs started it by giving like their stems and kind of like song seeds. And you can mint a pack of their song seeds and then use that to like generate your own versions of, I don't know if it's full songs, but like you can kind of create full songs off of the generations of it. You kind of go through them, choose which ones you like. And then you can like remint those and do other things in their like interactive world with it. And when there's any like iterative sales or things like that that come from it, it all pipes back to the artist. And the goal there is like all kinds of artists can distribute stuff into that ecosystem and it's all tracked and people can interact with it. So it's just like a, a microcosm of what you're talking about. And, you know, I don't think you have to use the blockchain or Web3 to necessarily do this, but I think it's, it's you know, a pretty great tool for it. Yeah, for sure. And you actually were just saying that music was a little bit more resilient on the blockchain as well over the past couple of years. What are some projects or, or sites like that that you have seen really growing while the rest of the market has kind of been dipping? I mean, well, Sound XYZ, you know, which is like the primary market. I mean, they've definitely done a lot of experimenting during this time, a lot mostly with pricing, right? So it's like, okay, do we need to make some version of free mints that go alongside the kind of more expensive mints, et cetera? Um, and there's another platform that I love called Serenade that focuses on doing digital pressings of like records. So it's like a, a mirror image, like it's essentially like another album format, but this one's on chain with some extra bonuses for it. And, you know, these are still in the grand scheme of things, you know, very, very small, like early warning signs more than anything. But I don't think like their value props have really gone, gone away. All that being said, for me, the biggest thing for like music NFTs and music on the blockchain that I see as a value is not even necessarily in it as a product, like that's like the end use itself. It's more, you know, how can I identify all of these fan or user behavior actions across like the entirety of my business as an artist and have that all port back into like my home base 
and be able to deliver better experiences to fans because of it. So without going off on a tangent there, I mean, I, I just think that all of that's existing outside of like music NFTs as products. And Randy, I know you guys did some stuff with Under Oath, right? For the NFT, you did the Revolver part. Yeah, we did. It's just utilizing the NFT as an authentication means for a physical product. You know, what, what we were doing is pressing vinyl. Each piece of vinyl had an NFT to authenticate it. And then we did, of this pressing, we did some pieces that were one of ones, five of fives, and you were able to prove that you own the one of one vinyl through your NFT. And if you wanted to sell it, the NFT was tied to the piece of vinyl. So my personal opinion is overpriced JPEG concept of NFTs, I just, I'm not bought in on but I'm bought in on the technology. To me, that's a perfect use case. Like that could go for sneaker resale. That could go for, you know, the $30,000, you know, pocketbook that people buy. I think there's a real opportunity where, you know, we used to put a hologram on a sports jersey to prove that it's real. We can attach an NFT to those products. Those are the use cases yep. that excite me more so than, you know, like Serenade, you know, does what I call the digital seven inch, you know, and it's, it's a really cool idea. But the only thing that really feels valuable to me is if you sold that digital seven inch a week before the song was released. So that super fan is rewarded in some way where if they have this collectible, they're also getting something first because it's tough to sell, you know, a wrapped MP3 for any more money. In my opinion, I feel like I'm taking advantage of the fan. I, I often say, you know, NFTs are a solution to a problem, but people are looking for the problem. It's, it's a great solution, but people are selling the solution without the problem quite often. You know, like taking out of the music business, even, I feel like every car should have an, an NFT attached to it. And when you go to a mechanic, it's added to the blockchain. And when you buy a car, there's a record in the blockchain of everything that was done, how it was serviced, how it was taken care of, when it was in an accident, could even have if you had tickets or whatever, just like everything clocked in the blockchain. And like, that's my huge issue I have with the blockchain and this entire blockchain industry is I feel like we're focusing on a lot of the wrong use cases because we're trying to make it sexy. It's really like the Excel spreadsheet, you know, it's, exactly. just, it's not sexy, yeah. but it will allow a lot of exciting things to happen. It, it's a longer time frame for those things to occur. And, you know, for me, it's like, what's complicated is you need a lot of things to be interoperable for them to, for it to like ha see its full potential, which means you need a lot more places that matter to kind of start interacting. So like, for instance, I, I love the, the under earth vinyl example, because I think that's such a like clear use case. And the added value of that is like, Okay, now as Under Oath, you can know all the people who bought those things, or maybe even if someone else bought it from them and they're now in ownership of it. And you could potentially link that back to like a central fan membership token or even directly to, okay, now we have uh, our new tour going on sale and we're going to work with Ticketmaster who are allowing artists to integrate tokens to get verified pre-sales. So you could say like, if you bought the vinyl of the new record, you get first dibs on buying our artist presale. And it's actually going to be like one of the smoother verified fan processes. Yeah. You and we actually, yeah, we actually just did that, not with tickets, but with vinyl, they released a new song and all token holders were messaged that we're going to release new vinyl. And because you're a token holder, you are the first fan to get access. And before it goes on sale or is announced to the public, 
you could get it first. And by the way, one thing I left out that I think is really important in the under oath example is we charged about five bucks extra for the vinyl. We didn't charge $150 for the NFT vinyl. You know, it was it was normally priced vinyl that you paid a little extra for that mechanism. But as we know, so many people just go to like NFT, let's charge double or triple, you know, a couple of years ago, 30,000 times as much. Well, I think, yeah. so it, it speaks to something where the very early users or buyers of music NFTs happen to be crypto native and using money they've made flipping other NFTs or elsewhere in crypto. So products are trying to fit into that and try to sell to them. And it's not really music fandom. That's like flipping and trading and speculation. And to me, I, you know, just aligning with what you're saying, I don't think that is the long-term driving use, which is really more about data and fandom and verification. And what I would say is like proof of fandom. I mean, I've got all these vinyl records behind me, right? It's like if I could prove in the digital worlds that we live that I own all of these things and have ways of showing that off or making that valuable, that's, that's the thing. And I, I actually think even more so than records, thing that I get excited about for the future of blockchain with music is in the live music space. And I think of a fan base like, say, Dave Matthews Band or Grateful Dead, where fans are religious about going to see the band. They follow them. They collect T-shirts, the tour T-shirts from everything. They like the bootleg records of the recordings. I think what would be amazing is if you were able to take a fan base like that and then put the bootleg recordings of all the different shows, the tour t-shirts for each tour that they do with the, the art and build a club around that where like maybe you're trying to collect every date of the 2023, you know, Dave Matthews tour. So you're buying offline if you didn't go to the date or whatever. So you're able to create this huge community that the band can then bring into a discord, bring into something else, have a sale, their own sales market for their stuff. And it, it's just building this community off of social media. It's more direct to fan. I know Rob, you tweeted recently about the need for artists to be more focused on direct to fan. So that's one of the things that I'm super excited for is what it could be in the live, the live music space. It was a huge, by the way, I sent you guys a, a tweet draft I have that I've been scared of sending out, which just goes on the whole cost thing, which is like vinyl to CDs, cheaper, easier. CDs to MP3, cheaper, easier. MP3 to streaming, cheaper, easier. Streaming to NFTs, costly or harder. Why don't anyone want, why doesn't anyone want this? <laughs> it just speaks you like it doesn't, it, have, it doesn't have to be a hundred X more expensive. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. I, I totally, you know, with you on that, Rich. I think to me, there's so many things you can do where it's just like, hey, like I know you're at this show. And like on the way home from the show, we like airdrop to your wallet artwork or something around the set list or, you know, something, you know, individualized to you that, that is memorializing it. I'm like a huge, you know, fish fan growing up, you know, and there's like these, you know, fan made websites that like you could plug in every show you went to and it'll show you stats on that or whatever. I mean, like for bands that have that kind of fan base, having tokens associated with every single show to me, that's that's like such a clear use case. And geofencing, you know, to show up to the location, to authenticate that you are at the show that then opens up other opportunities. Like those are the things that are all exciting. And then for the artist, it's exciting if that's a play to build a stronger relationship with the people who are at a show, because quite often we do not get all the fan info who of people who buy a show. You just get the ticket buyer. And again, ticket buyer goes to the promoter, not even to the artist. So we need more ways to collect that fan data. I, I was just uh, texting with an agent friend of mine, Ethan Berlin is the agent for Goose, who's like a jam band that's starting to really take off. And I was like, what data do you guys have to know like how many of your fans come to multi-night runs? Because like they're a band who does a lot of like 
three Fortnite runs in different areas. And he's like, it's terrible. He's like, we barely know anything. We get some stuff from like pre-sale and it's, you know, and, and the agents. But once again, it, it's just, you know, who was the central ticket buyer? We don't know who came with them as friends. We don't know who was sold in the secondary market. Like, I think it, it solves a lot of that data, especially because maybe you can dangle this thing you're going to give to people if they check in and get this token gated thing or, or, or token issuance. So I, I think there's a lot of power in that. And then even things like VIP packages for shows through an NFT that people can then put on the secondary market or in venue opportunities, like you can get 20% off at the merch table or seat upgrades if they're available. That sort of thing I think is also- I personally struggle with a lot of those things though, Rich, because to me, you're replicating what we could already do. Why do we need the blockchain for that the applications i get more excited about it's you can't do it without it and not not to knock it anyway but like where my excitement comes from is those new pieces because what i find is i get pitched regularly and it's quieted down this year thankfully you know an nft that's just another fan club for a band it's the same pitch that i got 10 years ago via a new technology but it's serving the identical purpose. Where I'm excited is a new tool, kind of like what we were just talking about with generative AI. Awesome. And staying on the live music front, Randy, that's something I really wanted to pick your brain on because there's not a person in the music industry that I know that knows more about what's going on, the technological advances in the live space. Are, are there any things that happen in 2023 or that are predicted to happen in 2024 that you are super excited about in, in terms of ticketing? The thing I'm most excited around ticketing is not technology, because the, the problem around technology is you have a market leader who's going to control how they want to control the market and no technology advancements can really push that unless it's their own internal push. But what's exciting to me that's going on is in the last week, three bills have been introduced into Congress to add some fan protections around ticketing. As is usually the case with Congress, there's some flaws in areas, but overall some really great moves, potentially banning speculative ticketing. When a tour is announced, people are putting tickets on sale before they have possession of the tickets. Fans are getting ripped off. And basically, you know, it's it's kind of like shorting stocks. These people are putting up tickets priced at a really high price. They know that the price is going to come down later and they're fulfilling a ticket later when they find it cheaper later and they're just ripping fans off. Some of those practices, you know, um, some of the bot actions they're going after. And then these fraudulent websites where if we live on Long Island, Rich and I, there's an amphitheater here, Jones Beach Amphitheater. If you go to jonesbeach.com, it's a ticket scalper website and legally they're allowed to do that and pretend to be the venue and sell scalp tickets. So there's action going against that. So some of those areas I'm excited about. And, you know, all of this is really thanks to Times Person of the Year, which really helped put a spotlight on ticketing, which was, you know, Taylor Swift, obviously. Talk about a great use case, basically for an entire career. I mean, I don't think you can get an artist that is more on top of every single aspect of what they need to be doing to succeed than Taylor Swift. Yeah, except I feel like she knew she was going to break Ticketmaster and it just added to her story. There's been a few and I, I don't... In, in, in the, in the storyline. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even say that in a like, she's evil, or whatever, but I think she lawlessly played the Ticketmaster scenario. You know, it's on tours of that size, this happens fairly often. And there were certain decisions that could have been made to alleviate some of the problems. 
a lot of tours stagger the on sale, you know, so that they're not all sold at once. So it doesn't put as much strain on the system. I don't even blame her, but I, I feel like she and her team knew that there would be some additional problems, but the shows would sell out regardless and it would become yet another narrative. And it's a narrative about a real problem. So much press driven around that, you know, not, not that she, you know, lacked for, for press, but it was just a huge additional moment in story. And then, you know, she becomes part of the, uh, the hero as well. Yeah. And, you know, from, Which from is great. my, yeah, from my investigating over the last year, I'm fairly confident that there was some knowledge that, you know, decisions that were made would have her in the conversation more, but these problems would happen regardless too. So it's like, if they're going to happen, no matter what, take advantage. You know, that's what, you know, a smart business person does. That sort of scenario comes down to anything that, again, we talk about disruptors like AI or even the blockchain. If the opportunity is there to take advantage of a situation and you're not necessarily hurting your fans or your following, like, why not do it? I guess in that situation, her fans were. But they were going to be hurt anyway. Like the end game, there was going to be way more people who wanted tickets. You know, the bottom line with Taylor Swift, as well as a lot of other massive artists, there's a finite amount of shows that they could physically play and more people want to go and people are going going to one use tools to try to get ahead of the line others are going to spend their own money you know spend you know more money than everyone else to get access there's just different ways people are going to fight because it's a finite amount of tickets people were hurt but no matter what decision she made people are going to be hurt it's completely impossible and you know i saw an interesting statistic which i think may actually be true but i'm always skeptical when it comes to secondary market ticketing but it appears that the biggest winners in the scalping of taylor swift tickets was taylor swift fans there was a massive uptick and i don't have the numbers in front of me of first time sellers on all the ticket resale platforms because the verified fan tools that the Ticketmaster put in place actually worked to a fairly good degree. But what happened is you had some people who were super fans with like, I just got third row seats. I could go to this or I could travel the world for a year and a half. And it's like, you know what? I love Taylor Swift, but I'm getting $10,000 a ticket. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just selling them. And it looks like the scalper fan was a fairly big winner when it came to Taylor Swift. And then they go and catch Taylor Swift, not as good as seats, but they go see her in Paris instead of Long Island. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, and that kind of thing happens. Like you go see her in South America where tickets on the resale were... $800 rather than $8,000. My best friend growing up just flew down to Buenos Aires and Patagonia for two weeks. And he's like, we're in Buenos Aires for two nights. And he's like, Taylor Swift is playing here. And it costs like 20% what it costs up here. So he's like, I'm not even a Taylor Swift fan, but we're going. <laughs> so, hey, yeah, sell yeah, your yeah. ticket, go travel it, to another city and go do it. Exactly. So you saw a lot of that kind of thing going on, which don't get me wrong. I despise the scalpers and I'm sure the scalpers did quite well, but I was happy to see that some of the scalping on that was the fans just looking at it and going, I love her, but I could buy a new car. You know, like it's crazy. If you bought four tickets for your family, you could sell them for 10 grand a piece. Like crazy. Like you have to look at the opportunity, you know, for your life. And Randy, you said something that was interesting there too, where there's only a finite number of shows that these artists can do. 
where my mind went with that is live streaming. And obviously during the pandemic, it was huge. It's not doing great right now. But then you look at a company like Moment House that Randy, you were a big part of that. They just sold to Patreon, was it? Yeah, Patreon. So there's clearly still a market there. There's a reason Patreon was willing to buy them. And my question is, do you guys think there is going to be any place for live streaming in 2024? Do you think the moment is over? Like what's the future of live streaming like? I have a short answer on it and then I'll let Rob expound wherever he wants to go. But to me, the live stream, and I said this in the moment when live streams were big and I stand by it now, if any major artist used to put out an album DVD at the end of their album cycle. That's what the live stream is now. It's it's a new way to interact with your fans. Nobody buys DVDs. It's typically an album launch rather than at the end of an album cycle, but occasionally at the end of the album cycle. And it's just another piece to engage with your fan. It's what Taylor just did with her film. It's what Beyonce did with her film. I've been talking to a bunch of other artists that they're going to make films next year. The stream isn't necessarily a ticketed event that you're going to watch on your computer. There's multiple other ways you're experiencing it. It's just a transition from the DVD at the end of the day, though. Agreed. I mean, I also think there was just so many people flooding into the space that there was, wasn't was that massive of a market. And even if it is, there's only going to be so many winners. I do think it ends up typically better inside of uh, a tool suite than necessarily as its own standalone tool. I think that's why maybe the uh, Moment House going to Patreon makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I look at it even for, you know, artists of all sizes, like there's an artist I, I help with a little bit, like who's very, very entirely Web3 focused. Her name is Violetta Zeroni, and she's done really well with like 1.2 million in music NFT sales for an artist you've never heard of. And has like a really dedicated, like niche collector base. And like the core value that's given back is every week, they do a live stream concert that you can only participate in if you're a holder. And it's like, it works because for them, it's like a place to kind of get together and it feels like this extra thing you're getting. And then there's another platform called Volume that I like some of what they're doing because it's like, you can actually sell an artist subscription, like a monthly subscription for a few bucks and you get access to like one live stream a month. So I think there's like ways of integrating it, but the thing to think about it, you talk about how like the artist doing the one DVD at the end of the tour. I mean, the reality is like, most artists can do one live stream really per tour unless you're fish or goose or a band like that where it really makes sense so like there's a there's a limiting factor there you know i think it's going to be interesting and i don't i don't think we're it's, it's like a medium future term thing uh, which is what kind of like AR is going to do for this element of the business i don't think it's going to like take over live music it's going to be you're just going to be doing immersive AR live streams. Uh, but I do think that that will like help whether it's live stream or just live digital event business as like that experience becomes upgraded. When you're going into augmented reality, are you still thinking off chain augmented reality live streams similar to what you're currently seeing? Or are you thinking more performances in the metaverse? Yeah. I mean, the metaverse is such a like a loose term to me. It can mean so many things. So to me, it's just like so much of this is dependent on the hardware. So like if you have Apple's, you know, fourth version Vision Pro, so many people have it and they could sit on their couch and like wear it or use it. You know, and then you can deliver these experiences within that that are just incredible. Is that the metaverse? Sure. Yeah. So then, then yes, the metaverse at that point. To me, it's all about community and whether we're talking live streams, live shows, metaverse, 
What people want when they engage with music is community. People will go to a show where they like one song or they casually like the act because they're going for that human interaction. Unless the live stream can really create that true community, which it can for certain scenarios. Other than that, you have like the fishes and the few bands where people want to see every show. And, that, and that's still community. Even if they're watching it alone, it's part of a community to experience it. And it's the huge piece that's left out with all of this entertainment. I watch my kids who are eight and 10 years old, they play in Roblox or like now they're playing, um, oh God, what the heck's the name? Gorilla Tag in VR. And they're hanging out with their friends in these places. And it's all about that community. That's why people experience music that way. I think live streaming of podcasts is going to continue to grow because podcasts, you add a little additional interactivity but everyone listens to a podcast alone. You don't get together with a group of friends to listen to the new podcast of anything ever. Other than and that's friends. why, yeah, exactly. Everybody, except for this, everybody yeah. get together with your friends to listen together and discuss. <laughs> but like, as we know, people listen individually. So it's, it's a different experience. You need to look at that when you're offering it as a product. So like something that's interesting with that, are you guys familiar with station head? You know, yeah. like that's just live social audio, you know, and that's all around the idea of people being in community together with each other, you know, to kind of like crystallize, like the problem they were solving was like two sisters, like one who lived in LA, one who lived in Japan, who wanted to like listen to this album that came out from an artist of theirs together, you know? And so it's like, you can create these shared spaces based on an artist and host your own DJ like sets essentially and have people come in. But then now artists on release week can come in and like play their album and like talk through it and invite people up and chat. And it's like these layers on top of the kind of mass consumption solo listening experiences we have that like it's in the experience itself that it's not communal, but also they get so hyper personalized as we're moving forward that it, it gives us less shared moments, shared experiences, shared, shared culture. And live is a great antidote to that. But to find like digital ways and consumption ways that are antidotes to that, I, I find really fascinating, which is why like Station Head and, and some of this live streaming, I think if done well, can really kind of like scratch that itch that people have. I feel like Clubhouse was doing that with podcasts even though Clubhouse wasn't a podcast, Clubhouse brought this idea of you had a really, you know, interesting person leading and then other people interacting and people listening. If they were better curated and like 50 other things they did better, they could have been the live podcast platform where you recorded these sessions and you went back and listened to them and it was highly curated, but fans interacted and asked questions at the end. Like, I think there's interesting ways that somebody will resurface what Clubhouse did in the future and have a really great way to interact around audio. Yeah, for sure. And Twitter Spaces obviously came in and uh, mimicked what they were doing. I still, I, I personally thought Clubhouse was a much better case there, but yeah. I, I agree. I, I don't, I think there is such a demand for that that is not being met that I think there, there will definitely be, whether it's Clubhouse resurfacing or different company doing, it, I think there'll be something along those lines coming back into play at some point. Staying on the topic of community, another big thing that I want to talk to you guys about here 
earlier was, again, coming back to that tweet that Rob had about direct fan approach, because here we preach what we call platform agnostic marketing, where it's not just let's go viral on TikTok. Let's become an Instagram star because social media is so volatile that, you know, this week it's like, you got to post reels, you got to post one a day. Then two weeks from now, it's like, oh, well now it's, it's, you got to do photo dumps on Instagram. Now it's Instagram doesn't matter. You got to go to TikTok. So it's like, what is the best way to engage your community without being beholden to social media trends while still not ignoring the importance of social media? So what I wanted to ask you guys, because I think you guys are both phenomenal at this and Randy, what you do with Under Oath, I think is top tier in terms of the way you guys engage with your fans. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you guys about Direct-to-Fan and what you think the role of social media is going to be moving forward as all this sort of evolves into a completely different beast. Yeah, I mean, social media is going to continue to be necessary, but I, I just look at it and, and increasingly more so as reaching new fans and discovery in advertising more so than it is keeping in touch with your fans. And that's just like a trend we're seeing more and it's becoming more of like a broadcast station where a smaller and smaller set of creators who create more like specifically for that medium for TikTok, for Instagram, or whatever it is, are wider in your feed. And as we all know, like you're you're experiencing less and less the group of people you follow to the friends that you have. And to a degree that hits artist as well, right? So it still exists for some of that, like reaching your own fans, but I, I actually see it much more so as a tool of how can you find the platforms that you can create really great content for to find new people, to bring them back into the places that you own and that are reliable. And so like the reasons are like, you know, the, the broadcast thing I mentioned, but also all of these platforms, social platforms over time trend towards showing less of what you do to your earned followers and then charging you for it or making you earn it in, in different ways, whether that's playing for the algorithm or paying for the algorithm. And we're even seeing this with streaming. I mean, if you look at like the direction Spotify is going, I mean, you need to use discovery mode and give back 30% of your or so of whatever it is of your royalties but to have a lot more algorithmic chance um, in radio, which then helps things take off. You know, they're selling marquee and they're selling showcase ads to artists to get in front of things. Like you could see where that trend may be going. So like use those tools but top of funnel tools and be really aggressive and smart about not always sending people back up to that where it's like you're in someone else's brand in this much wider context. All of those things are trying to keep people right onto the next thing that's not you. It's like something that approximates you, not to necessarily go deeper in what you're creating and doing. So use it, but then find ways to capture those people and bring them deeper into your world. And what I call like artist own platforms. And for every artist that can look really, really different. You know, it starts with like a great CRM, but then could be like any combination of email and SMS. There's like your email marketing letter, but then potentially even like a newsletter, apps, platforms, community subscription, all kinds of things that it, it's, it's very bespoke to the artist. But I just think that's always been important but it's becoming more and more important right now. Yeah, and, and that was actually, you mentioned a ton of great ones, but that was another one that I wanted to ask you guys. Are there any creation tools, CRMs, different things that you guys use for social media that you guys think artists aren't probably aware of or aren't utilizing enough of? Not so much on the social media side, but on the direct to fan communication side, Clavio for email communication. It's direct plug-in to your Shopify store, 
you can message fans based on interactions in your Shopify store, but then you can market to them directly as well. And it's just a great way to segment fans, communicate with fans. You can do things like set emails to wish people a happy birthday, you know, an email on the anniversary of when they join the mailing list, just whatever you can think of you can create triggers to communicate with your fans based on certain tentpole moments. Those are the types of tools that I look to use. Totally agree. And I, I call it an FRM, like fan relationship management system. And I just think having one that can plug into other areas, it goes back to the web three thing. That's like the long-term value is like, with that Shopify integration, it's like I can know every interaction someone's taking and therefore I can do all the things you're saying even better. Um, I like a platform called OpenStage, very similar, but also provides some tools for like creating unique landing pages that can capture people with really good information and then plug it, like uses pre-save and stuff like that to plug into their Spotify or Apple and actually see their behavior there. And does a lot of the same things as, as Clavio with a little bit more of like a music specific touch. They're earlier on the, the growth stage than Clavio. Um, I also think Lalo, which is great for like, very specifically, like, how do you use this moment that's happening, whether that's the announce of a tour or an album or a single to capture people's info really easily in the way they prefer. So text or email, and then you can tie a message back to that person based on the trigger event of what they've subscribed for. You know, they also have an Instagram integration, which is pretty cool. So like, what well, you can have like on an Instagram reel that if somebody like says a certain thing in the comments, they'll like get an auto DM to like sign up for things, just little things to try to like work around places that are hard to capture people's information outside the platform like Instagram. And then other than that, I mean, it's, it's, it's so platform specific, but like I, cause I do a lot of like my own stuff on Twitter, you know, there's a lot of tools for it, but like one is typefully where like you can set things so that like after a tweet performs at a certain level, you automatically follow it up with a follow-up tweet that says, you know, if you like that, like come follow me here. And I think artists should be kind of be using a little bit more of that mentality where it's like following up these things or always having a pathway for somebody who did this like easy interaction on the, that social media platform to then take the next interaction to go deeper. And it's like, if you just think about doing that over and over and over and over and over again with like a 2% conversion ratio, but it's owning that email or that piece of information is so much more valuable than sending somebody to Spotify. So the last thing that I really want to get into with you guys is streaming. Obviously, naturally, it's come up a ton as we've talked about these other topics, but it's still the number one way that people are discovering music, right? Like that hasn't changed. So I wanted to know from your guys' perspective, what are the most important things that happened in streaming in 2023 and anything that you see emerging for 2024 that if you are, say, an independent artist, that's listening to this podcast, like what they should know about streaming. It's a tough one. I don't feel like a lot has changed, to be honest. You know, you have Spotify was trying to expand to do more, you know, get involved in merchandise or ticketing and all these other areas, which they're now letting go of all those people and scaling back. Other than what Rob brought up earlier, Marquee and, you know, Discovery, which aren't necessarily new. They're just kind of doubling down. I'm not sure that there's anything interesting and new with streaming and music. You know, I, I would go the other direction and say Spotify specifically is doing everything in their power to get away from music as the core piece of content. They've, you know, within the past six weeks added audiobooks to the platform. And there's, you know, a certain amount of 
free audiobook hours that you can listen to. Spotify's biggest goal right now is to increase profits and they can make more money from you listening to an audiobook than from you listening to music because they have to pay music royalties based on how much music you listen to. And on the audio content, non-music audio content, they're paying a lower rate. I, I think that's where their focus is right now. Totally. If you look at the core product for them, it's such an impossible business model with very small margins and no way to change those margins, right? Of paying 70% to the rights holders. And, you know, I, I, I did some analysis on this, but I was making predictions for the next five years. And like right now they've got 555-ish million subscribers globally and Netflix has 225 million. And Spotify just barely made like their second profit ever. First ever real profit, because before it was on like financial mechanisms, it was like 25 million they made. Whereas, you know, Netflix is making a hundred times that. They're gonna need to get to, and I think they will in five years, like one and a half billion subscribers. And even at that point, they're gonna maybe be profiting what Netflix is now at 225 million subscribers. That's how hard this business is. And the thing is, most of the growth is coming from ex-Western markets where the, the rate that people are paying is so much lower. So like these numbers are going to grow, but the revenue is not going to grow in line with it on the base product. Um, so you're going to see more and more price increases. This is like, that's for like, you know, for all of them. You see the um, the audiobooks, and they, they made, did podcasting because they felt like that could be differentiation and where they can make ad money. You know, spent way too much money in that space. And I think like the things well, you're maybe seeing- Maybe not though, because they transitioned everyone to come over and now they're cutting the spending. True, true. Although, I mean, yeah, 1.27 billion on acquisitions and another 500 million on content, which is nuts, but hey, you know. <laughs> But if all of uh, us stay there forever, I mean, I was listening to a sure. podcast most recently on Spotify before, you know, I jumped into here. For sure. For sure. It's probably why well, I'll listen back to this one afterwards uh, when it when it goes live. <laughs> but if you look at it like so much, is like that kind of that cost cutting because they actually tout in their, in their Q3 earnings how well like the, the marketplace is doing. And the marketplace is really like that artist label marketplace selling ads back and, and reducing their costs uh, to, to rights holders by using discovery mode for so many streams are being driven by that. And if you could reduce the cost of those streams. And so marquee and showcase and just saying, hey, we have all this attention. We are like the governors of this attention. How can we charge for that? Which I think is ultimately like, it gives more gatekeeping back to like the traditional music industry. And I think will end up being a positive thing for bigger labels and people like that who want to do like traditional campaigns with like a knowing sense of what's going to make a difference. It'll probably make it a little bit harder for, for younger, smaller artists in, in those spaces. The other, the other big trend I'd say, it's really just a continuation is just away from editorial into algorithmic. And even just like what seems like editorial is algatorial. So you'll see these playlists you get added to and you're like, wow, I got added to like a million listener playlist and it was like chosen by someone. But then you're like, how come I only got like 50 streams on that this week? And a lot of that is because like all of those are personalized as well. So all, a lot of these playlists, like you may look at it and yours may show there's a hundred songs on it, but there could be like 2000 songs on it that are different for everybody. And they've cut back on like, I, I was looking at the percentages. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's remember offhand, but the amount of listens that are driven from editorial playlisting to algorithmic playlisting as like editorial has just gone down to like under 15% of that equation. Yeah, and keep in mind, editorial is still driven by algorithm. <laughs> True. They're looking at data to decide what goes into editorial. So like to me, like one of the big things that I made is just how fragmented, personalized, 
and out of your control those things become. Those were both great points. And I do want to say one thing here. Naturally and with good reason, you guys both immediately went to Spotify when I said streaming. Do you think for an artist, it makes sense to really focus all their efforts on growing their Spotify presence? Or do you think a more wide ranging effort at, you know, Apple, Amazon, even some of the smaller ones like Deezer, that they should be looking at streaming as more of a whole, or is it just really a focus on Spotify? I think for the majority of artists, streaming is much more discovery of fans than it is like, I'm gonna make my money here. Not that you're not gonna make money there, uh, because you just need such scale. So I think like, it depends on who your team is and how much bandwidth to actually run all these things. But you should be running best practices at all of these places and make sure you're doing all the things you can do. You know, if you're like, a country artist or like a, you know, you lean more towards like adult audiences, like Amazon's going to be, you know, a little bit more important to you than it would be otherwise. What I think is more is, is focusing on what are like the much smaller ponds early on that you could focus on. Like if you're Afro beats, like you should really, really care about audio Mac and like, yeah, they're not even like paying for streams really, but like, how can I create new fans there, create buzz there that's going to spill over into the other places. Same thing for maybe SoundCloud for other artists, et cetera. So I think it depends on who you are, but you need to think about like, what is the, the goal that I'm trying to achieve at these different places? And regardless, like I agree with everything Rob said, but regardless, you need to think about all the platforms. You know, we, we tend to talk about Spotify because they're the largest market share. But at the end of the day, Apple Music is a really strong, significant market share. And if you're only focused on Spotify, you're making a mistake. You know, like when you do a landing page, you know, if you have a short URL, you should have a landing page that goes to all the core platforms that your fans are going to consume music on because you want to make the experience easy for them. If they listen to their music on Deezer, they're excited by Deezer or Tidal, you know, whatever the platform may be, there are people there and you want to cultivate that too because we talk about Spotify the most because that's where all the fans are, but we don't necessarily want or need to drive our fans to Spotify. And that's not a diss on Spotify. We should drive our fans where they're comfortable being and encourage them to engage there. And we want to see other platforms succeed, not at the peril of any other platform, but the more competition, the better it's going to be overall for artists. Because, you know, if there's 10 thriving communities versus one, it gives us a lot more opportunity. You know, you may have an act where the editors, you know, you have a rock band and the rock editor just doesn't like your band. It happens, you know, it's not personal, it's not anything, but if there's another platform that's doing really well and the rock editor there loves your band, it becomes kind of the way radio is, where the rock station in New York doesn't like you, but the rock station in LA loves you. Rock station in LA adds your band and the single blows up. The program director in New York's going to add it, even though they don't like it, because the fans like it. So the more we can encourage people to go to other platforms, it's just going to create more opportunity for our acts too. Well, guys, I can't say this enough. Thank you so much for your time here. I have one final question for you guys. And that's, can I get one bold prediction for the music industry in 2024 from each of you? If I'm going specific to 2024, I guess I'll say 50 million tracks released on DSPs, not like like UGC, but 50 million officially released tracks on, on streaming platforms. And I'm going to go for something around live and say that we are going to see the first significant legislation around ticketing pretty much ever. I think we're going to see some additional federal legislation 
around protecting fans with ticketing. But I'll go a step further and say that the scalpers are so far in the pockets of the um, unfortunately one specific political party that it is going to be a toothless legislation, but we will see some changes. And I'm, I'm excited, you know, the changes aren't going to be as much as it could be, but we're going to see some changes for the first time ever at a federal level on ticketing. And now here's my big reveal. This isn't a podcast. I just needed enough voice sample of Rob <laughs> so that I could use AI to get him singing Randy Happy Birthday. So that's why we're all here. <laughs> um, uh, you, you got way more than I you think needed, we got enough. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in closing, is there anything that you want to say to the listener anywhere they could follow you on socials or, you know, Rob, your newsletter and everything you want to let people know where to find you? Yeah. yeah. If they want to subscribe to the newsletter, they can go to where music's going.com. They can find me at Twitter at below Rob. Uh, as well. How did I not know about your newsletter, Rob? Crazy. I'm literally yeah. going to where music's Dude. going as we're talking. And Rob, I am now signed up for your mailing list. All right. Plus one. Yes. See, Rob, <laughs> you come on to State of Flux, you get new subscribers. It starts in the room. Then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to follow me, um, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. It's just, I think, Randy J. Nichols on LinkedIn. Instagram, ForceMM. X slash Twitter I'm on, but not often. I don't even know what my username is. So just Google my name and Twitter and it'll pop up. And um, I won't post much. <laughs> but LinkedIn, I, you know, as Rich will tell you, I think Rob as well, I love getting really great debate going on LinkedIn and tend to bring in a lot of the stakeholders of whatever issue I'm posting about will chime into the conversation. And we've had some amazing conversations in there. So that's really the best spot to follow me is LinkedIn. Yeah, By the way, go. maybe the, the social trend is I feel like LinkedIn turns out is going to be like the actual replacement to Twitter. No, I don't think you're wrong there because Twitter really is this business focused and like media business and all these other things. So it, it makes sense that LinkedIn is powerful. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that one. Cause like I'm a LinkedIn micro influencer. I have over 10,000 followers on LinkedIn more, more than I have on any other platform. And to me throughout my career, I've always focused on posting there because I look at myself as I'm running a business and I'm going to share opinions on business. And that's the place to talk about business. And Rob, you're actually pretty active on LinkedIn as well, aren't you? Yeah. I've gotten a lot more active on there in the last few months. And and it's crazy because I actually have a lot more followers on Twitter, but the engagement is better and like higher quality on LinkedIn these days. So uh, yeah, trying to exactly. be more active, trying to be more active there for sure. And I'll put all, all your guys' links in the description for the episode as well so people can find you. But thank you guys again so much for being here. A lot of great insight. I always learn a lot from you guys. You're two of the top people in the music industry that I feel like every time I have a conversation with you guys, I come away with a stronger knowledge base. Thanks for having us. Thank right. you. Are you ready? Are you ready?